providential. It's providential. As is our custom, I'm just going to read you one verse, and we'll, before we get to work, we'll, we'll pause and we'll ask the Lord to help us this morning. And so I just want to read one verse to you this morning, verse 24 and verse 25. I guess two verses. I beg your pardon. Two verses. Romans 1, 24 to 25. We'll read this, and then we'll, we'll get to work. It says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They believed a lie over the truth. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's just pause for a moment and pray and ask God to help us, and then we'll, we'll get to work. Father in heaven, we just, again, we say thank you, Lord, for sending your Son, ruined sinners to reclaim. And that's me, God. That's me. That's everybody. Father in heaven, this morning, as we open your word, particularly, Lord, if there are any within the hearing of this word who feel sexual attraction to individuals who are of the same gender. Or perhaps, Lord, individuals who may be hearing this word this morning who feel uncomfortable as a boy or as a girl, the gender that they have always known since they were conceived. If there are any, Lord, who struggle with these things, Our prayer, God, is that you would open their eyes to see your incredible love for them. And also, that they would worship you and know that you have the power to save them from all temptations. If you would but be worshipped. God, that is our prayer this morning. Is that we would all worship you and delight in you and find in your Son the satisfaction of every need and the complete satisfaction of our deepest need, which is to know you. Do this by your word through your Holy Spirit, we pray, God, in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. It was the shot heard round the world. That's how I've taken to calling it. Multiple scholars said that it is the strictest, most stringent Conversion therapy legislation anywhere in the world. There are dozens upon dozens of countries at this point that have passed laws regulating or outright forbidding uh, any attempt to change or to convert a person's sexuality from whatever sexuality they may identify as to heterosexuality. But multiple scholars have looked at Canada's law banning, so-called banning conversion therapy, and have determined that indeed it is the most repressive. One scholar in particular said, Canada appears to have passed a law endorsing a new religion. A new religion. 
Again, it is the strongest possible legislation anywhere in the world. And indeed, I'm willing to bet that the majority of you have probably not even heard of this or have even known that this was something that was occurring within our country. It was brought in rather quickly. The legislation was introduced under the previous parliament. as no, It was known at that time as Bill C-6. And there were a number of modifications and suggestions that were made to that legislation. Indeed, a number of scholars and a number of religious groups, in fact, were consulted for their feedback and their input. However, uh, that particular parliament was dissolved by liberals and Prime Minister Trudeau in order to uh, campaign for uh, a, another term in office, another swing at the bat, so to speak. And upon this current parliament taking its seat, they passed this law known as Bill C-4, which many assumed was like Bill C-6, but upon careful reading, it has been revealed to be far, far stricter and far, far more oppressive than Bill 6, C6 ever was. It came in the first week of December when most of us are thinking of Christmas and we're out Christmas shopping and putting up our trees. And so it didn't get a lot of attention or a lot of notice. In fact, as I'm speaking about it this morning, many of you, uh, many of you may be wondering, what's the big deal? And if I could just put it succinctly into one, uh, one sentence, the big deal is this. God loves everybody. God desires to save everybody. And God can save all those who place their faith in him. The big deal is this. This law prohibits us from talking about God as the creator, the one who made us to be what we are, and who died to save us that we might be all that he initially intended. This law, in a nutshell, if I could put it in a succinct term, is an act of incredible hatred from our government against individuals who identify as LGBTQ by denying them the ability to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. You might be saying, how in the world did our government pass a law like this? What exactly does this law say? This enactment amends the criminal code of Canada to the following. It creates the following offenses. This is what the law says. I'm reading to you verbatim, quoting. The following offenses, as a result of the passage of Bill C-4, now exist. A, it is now a crime to cause another person to undergo conversion therapy. That's A. B, it is now a crime to do anything for the purpose of removing a child from Canada with the intention of the parent that the child should undergo conversion therapy in a country outside of Canada. C, or item three, it is now a crime in Canada to promote or advertise conversion therapy. And last but not least, it is now a crime to receive financial or other material benefit from the provision of conversion therapy. It also amends the criminal code to authorize the courts to order that any advertisements for conversion therapy be confiscated or otherwise disposed of or deleted. So what is conversion therapy? You're hearing this term. What exactly does it mean? From Bill C-4, the definition of conversion therapy in our law reads as follows. In sections 320.101 of the criminal code, conversion therapy is defined as, quote, any attempt to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. Again, it is now a crime for any attempt to be made to, quote, 
change a person's sexual orientation to that of heterosexual. It is now a crime to, quote, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex that was assigned to that person at birth. So if you are, to kind of put that in layman's terms, if you are a man or a woman who has experienced what is known as gender dysphoria, and you have come to the realization that even though you were born as a man or a woman, you've transitioned to a different gender. That is, you were a man who has now undergone sex reassignment surgery or hormone treatment. Now you are considering yourself, you were a man, now you're considering yourself to be a woman. Any attempt to counsel or help that individual to help them to go back from being a woman back to the gender they were at birth, which was a man, that is illegal. They can't go back. Um, Any attempt to, quote, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or behavior. And lastly, any attempt, this is now illegal, any attempt to repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. There's a, a final paragraph here in the law in which our legislators, our parliamentarians say, quote, for greater certainty, this definition does not include a practice, treatment, or service that relates to the exploration or development of an integrated personal identity such as a practice, treatment, or service that relates to a person's gender transition that is not based on an assumption that a particular sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression is to be preferred over another. And you're looking at me, and the eyes have started to glaze over. You're like, can you just put that in layman's terms? I'm happy to. What the law is saying is that if someone comes to you and they want to explore or receive counseling or receive therapy to the effect that they are a heterosexual man or a heterosexual woman, and they want to transition to being transgendered, it is legal for you to counsel or help them in that direction. But it is illegal if an individual were to come to you wanting to go back the other way, back to the gender they were at birth, or back to a heterosexual uh, expression of their sex. You can't help them come back, but you can help them go the other direction. That's what the law says, word for word. And so this morning, we resume our study of the book of Romans. As I mentioned, we've been going through Romans as a matter of course. And this morning, we're going to review where we have been in the book of Romans in chapter 1. And what I want you to know, what I want you to know, what the government doesn't want you to know, is that God has made you as either a male or a female with the intention that you should be joined together within the legal bond of marriage and that you should experience all sex and all sexuality within that marital bond and only within that marital bond. And again, that marital bond, as understood from the Scripture, is to exist between one man and one woman. I, I, we're not talking about polyamory today. That'll come, I'm sure, in due time. But today, I just want you to understand that what, what Paul is talking about is that all sex and all sexuality is to be experienced and expressed within the bond of marriage. And this applies to all of us, regardless of whether or not we experience heterosexual sexual attraction or whether we experience homosexual 
sexual attraction. And so this morning, what I want to say to all of us, and especially to our our friends, our neighbors who may identify as LGBTQ, is that God loves you, that God can save you. And I fully understand that you may not want to hear this, and I understand that you do not want that knowledge that God loves you and sent his son to die for you. Regardless of what you want or don't want to hear, regardless of what the government does or does not want you to hear, God speaks. And I encourage you to hear him. Whether any church is silenced, whether any preacher is locked up in jail, the word of God will never be silenced. Look with me, Romans chapter 1. I want to just review for you very briefly. Paul makes this statement. It's the opening statement. There there are three major motions throughout this particular text. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. If you have a pen or a pencil and you're marking in your Bible, I invite you to underline that term, unrighteousness. That, That is the thread that is going to be woven all throughout this entire second half of chapter 1. Paul is saying that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Before Christmas, when we were preaching on this particular passage, I used the illustration that what the Apostle Paul is saying is that everybody is capable of understanding the truth, that the truth is obvious, that God has made it obvious in creation, in the things that have been made. But what man does is they don't want to hear that truth. They want to suppress that truth. The illustration that I used at that time is kind of like when I'm out in the lake playing with my kids. We, we sometimes inflate this giant beach volleyball. And because I'm long and I have lanky arms, I can get up on that bo- volleyball and I can balance on top of that in the water. And I'm able, because I'm heavier, we won't say how heavy I am, but I'm heavier than my children. I'm able to suppress that ball. I'm able to stay on top of it and it'll sink lower in the water such that I can hold it down. Whereas my kid tries to get up on top of it, they're less skillful, they're less adept at it. And uh, as a result, they try to get on top of that beach ball, but they can't and they flip right off. Well, this is to explain the nature of our world. We don't want to hear the truth and we are growing incredibly sophisticated in our attempts to suppress that truth. And all of modern psychology has now been enlisted and employed towards that end of suppressing one very crucial, very unavoidable truth, which Paul, the Apostle Paul, does not hesitate to point out to us here in Romans chapter 1, namely, that there is a gender, that there is male and female, that it is God's gift to us by design, and that his intention in giving us that gift is that we would know the happiness and the pleasure that exists within the bond of marriage, and that this gift of sex is properly to be used within that bond of marriage, and from that gift will come the blessing of children. Paul talks about this in verse 24. It says, as a result of all of these attempts to suppress the truth, to hold it down, to ignore that truth, it says that God then gives us up in that unrighteousness, in that attempt to suppress that truth. It says in verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies 
among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the, the creator who is blessed forever. And you're hearing that, and you might be asking yourself the question, what does this mean, the dishonoring of their bodies? What is Paul getting at there? Verse 26, then, he makes it clear. For this reason, God has given them up to dishonorable passions. Now, that dishonorable passion ties back to the previous statement when he says we're dishonoring our bodies. So these two statements clearly go together, and he gets even more specific. Their women, he says, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, contrary to what has been created, contrary to what is. Verse 27, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And now the concluding paragraph comes in verse 28. It says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. This is a mind that no longer functions properly This is a mind that will now employ its reason and its logic towards trying to come up with inventive, creative new ways, again, to suppress that truth. And what Paul is saying is because these individuals are engaging in these things, God gives them over to it to continue to come up with creative and inventive ways to continue to suppress that truth. It says that since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, gave them, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, this is an important paragraph for all of us, regardless of whatever sexual attraction we may experience. This giving up of humanity as a result of our suppressing the truth about God is not limited to individuals who struggle with homosexual sexual attraction. This is all of us. Paul's indictment goes on to condemn every single one of us in this room. He says, since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. They are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. This is really the reason I wanted our kids to step out this morning. I didn't want to crush them under the weight of that conviction. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. They are disobedient to parents. They are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This attempt to suppress the truth, this attempt to invent and become creative in new ways of explaining away what is obvious, what is patently obvious, is not content to reside within the heart and the mind of one individual. They will become evangelists in a sense. They come up with a way to explain away to sort of dumb down what is clear in all of creation. And having come up with this clever idea in which they are really seeking to justify themselves in their own behavior, they then take that idea and they proselytize. They share it around. They encourage people to join with them in this rebellion. 
And of course, for those who might stop the rebellion, who might object, who might oppose it, might say, wait a minute, I don't know if this is such a good idea, they will try to silence those individuals. In terms of rhetoric, the argument of chapter 1, 18 to 32, can be classified as a judicial indictment. Paul's goal here isn't necessarily to pick on any one group of people. His goal here is to pick on all of us. His goal here is to show that we have all sinned, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. First, in chapter 1 and then verse 18, this is his opening summary statement, and it focuses on the present manifestation of God's wrath. God's wrath is clear. It is here. We see it, okay? And it is revealed against humanity, he says, for knowingly suppressing the truth about God. Second, verses 19 to 23, describes idolatry. This is where we worship something other than God. Verses 19 to 23 describes idolatry as an inexcusable denial of the truth of God, which is visible to the human eye. There's no not knowing this, is what Paul is saying. He says, it is clear in the things that have been made. There is, as a result, an exchanging of God's obvious glory for statutes, beg your pardon, for statues in human or animal forms. We are worshiping something, we are not worshiping God. And because we don't want to worship God, we will find something to worship. And then verses 24 to 31 validates the course of God's action, what God does in response to this rebellion. He says, for this reason, God has given them up. He says this over and over again. For this reason, God gives them over to a debased mind. For this reason, God gives them up. Over and over again, he gives us over to the idols that we would choose to worship. And in this particular passage, what Paul is trying to show is that God's course of action is just. He says that God has given us over to our sinful impulses. And to show what is obvious, he uses the example of homosexuality. He says God has given them over to these these lustful impulses, which are impure, both, number one, in the desire for same-sex sexual intercourse as the epitome of self-degradation. An action that he says, Paul says in verses 24 to 27, is utterly contrary to nature. That's the exact quote, contrary to nature. And then the second thing is that God gives idolaters over to these sinful impulses because of various other, other evil desires that are in, elaborated in the form of this list at the very end. And this just fills out the picture of depraved human conduct. All of this is to point to the inescapable conclusion that homosexual sin, as well as all other sin, is the result of a failure to worship God. But there's good news. God sends His Son to die on the cross in order to save us from our sin and to save us from sinning. God not only pays the debt that we owe for our sins, but God also has the power to begin to sanctify us in order to empower us not to continue on in the path of sin. 
Now, at this particular moment, this is when we are presented with a very difficult question. Indeed, many of us probably know someone who identifies as LGBTQ, who has struggled with homosexual sexual attraction. We understand that this is a powerful, powerful desire deep inside of us. And some of you might be here today, and you might be saying, Pastor Josh, I know somebody who struggles with this, and they tried to change, and it was hard, and at the end of the day, they ultimately could not change. And as we look at this law, which Canada has passed, we are reminded of the law in which Bill C-4 says in its preamble, uh, the bill says uh, point blank, that it is a myth that, uh, that one sexuality is to be desired over another sexuality. And in the preamble, they state the reason that they are outlawing it is because all attempts at conversion uh, to change from homosexual back to heterosexual identity, all attempts are harmful and cause harm. And so we're presented with a question, two questions as a matter of fact. One, does any attempt to repress a person's homosexual desire cause harm? Does it cause harm? That's the first question we have to ask. And number two, is it possible to change? And this strikes at the heart of the gospel. This strikes at the heart of everything we believe about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we preach it over and over again, did not come merely to die in order to pay our debt so that we would then go on living in sin. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, what then? Are we to continue in sin in order that grace may abound? Meginita, double emphatic, no, no, double negative, no, it may not be. We who have been crucified with Christ have died to sin that we might live in the newness of life which he purchased for us. So this is a very important question. Is it harmful to strive for holiness? Does it cause psychological harm? That's the first question we want to ask because we want to know in our pastoral counseling, in our attempts at discipleship, are we hurting people by calling them to repentance? Number two, is repentance even a thing? Is it even possible? We're going to look, obviously, at what the Scriptures say. But I thought it would be helpful for us this morning to look at what the psychiatrists say first. After all, our politicians felt that this was so damaging and so destructive that conversion therapy was just running unchecked and rampant through all the clinical counseling offices all across Canada that they had to do something about it. And when we ask, what kind of conversion therapies did you have in mind when you passed this legislation, the number one answer that was given was, well, we, we just want to make sure that we didn't have counselors out there doing electroshock therapy or behavioral modification to the extent uh, what's been described to me is you have someone who identifies as homosexual and you bring them into your office and you show them uh, homosexual pornography, and if they start to experience arousal, you shock them or something like that, so that they begin to associate the pain of electroshock with, you know, get homosexual pornography, and, and they begin to disassociate, th- these kinds of things, right? And so the, if this is what we're doing, we're passing this law to, to ban these sorts of practices, then uh, of course we should have like some sort of, you know, 
I apologize for my use of words, but there, there should be some sort of pandemic of guys running around out there with, you know, car batteries and jumper cables just ra- waiting to shock people who, who look homosexual, right? That's what you'd expect given the fact that they felt the need to pass a law, right? Well, as a matter of fact, that's not what we find at all. Again, the question is, does it cause harm? And, and what exactly is it that these people are doing that we need to outlaw, uh, that, that we're worried is causing harm? And is change possible? Perhaps the most famous study that was ever done was done by an individual by the name of Robert Spitzer. Okay, Robert Spitzer. And uh, as we look at Robert Spitzer's research, we need to know a little bit about Robert Spitzer. He's not a Christian. He doesn't, I, I was not able in my studying of Dr. Robert Spitzer to find anything about him in terms of uh, his beliefs in Jesus or religion. He is most prominently known as a gay rights activist. In fact, Dr. Robert Spitzer is legendary. Uh, You may be familiar with the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, the DSM. It is sort of the Bible that psychiatrists and psychologists use in order to understand mental health disorders. And we're on our fifth, I think, fifth edition of it. But when we changed the third edition to, to say that homosexuality was to no longer be regarded as a mental health condition, the individual that pioneered and championed that change was none other than Dr. Spitzer. And his belief was that homosexuality was not a mental health issue, that it was a normal part of life. And as a result, psychiatrists and psychologists should not be categorizing uh, uh, homosexuality as a disease in any way, shape, or form. Now, the effort to ban all psychological medical clinical attempts at conversion therapy or reparative therapy, as it's also been called, started way back in the 80s. And right around the year 2000, Dr. Spitzer, who was the gay rights activist, who describes himself proudly as a gay rights activist, who championed the change of the DSM to no longer categorize homosexuality as a disease, conducted a study to address what the American Psychiatric Association was calling indisputable harm that resulted as a matter of course from, uh, from conversion therapy. He says in his study, and I'm reading to you directly from the introduction, in recent years, quote, in recent years there has been a marked change about both the desirability and the feasibility of attempts to alter a homosexual sexual orientation. In the past, such change was generally considered both desirable and possible. He lists dozens of studies going back to the 60s, which revealed that indeed a person's sexual orientation could be altered and indeed in which individuals wanted it altered because they struggled with dissatisfaction with their homosexual orientation. They wanted to live, in their words, a more normal lifestyle. And so multiple clinicians, multiple psychiatrists going back to the 60s had conducted studies and found that such a change in orientation was possible. So he lists those studies. And then he goes on to say, quote, an increasing number of clinicians believe that, cha- that such change rarely, if ever, occurs, and that psychotherapy with this goal often is harmful by increasing self-loathing, lowered self-esteem, hopelessness, and depression. And he quotes a couple of articles from different psychologists who list the, these, these harms as having taken place as a result of conversion therapy. Now, he goes on to make this statement. 
the 2000 American Psychiatric Association position statement on therapies focused on attempts to change sexual orientation noted that, quote, there have been no scientifically rigorous outcome studies to determine either the actual efficacy or the harm of so-called reparative treatments. That's what it was known at that time. This is uh, early 2000s, 2003 to be exact. No clinical studies have been done to show that individuals who've undergone conversion therapy or reparative therapy, as it's also known, no clinical studies have been done that show that harm was done. This is all anecdotal. This is all just people thinking that this is what's happening, but we haven't actually assessed it. We haven't actually measured it. So he goes on. The purpose of this study, therefore, is to assess the feasibility of conversion as well as the harm that is experienced as a result of such therapies. That's the goal of this study. He's answering the two questions that I want to know. Okay? And in case you're wondering, he gets into all the nitty-gritties that uh, we might say is just too much information. He, he wants to know not only about an individual's self-identification, how a person thinks of themselves. He wants to know about... Uh, whether or not they experience yearning or arousal, whether or not they're actually capable of having sexual intercourse in a heterosexual manner. And he gets into all of those nitty-gritties. He surveys over uh, 2,000, beg your pardon, 200 different individuals, both men and women. Quote, critics, here's another excerpt from his study, quote, critics of reparative therapy acknowledge that therapy can change homosexual behavior by the individual resisting acting on homosexual feelings. However, critics say, homosexual orientation itself remains unchanged. For the purposes of this study, a person's sexual orientation is operationalized by multiple measures of sexual attraction, including arousal, fantasy, yearning, as well as overt behavior, by which he means actual intercourse. Okay? That's a direct quote. He's measuring all of those things. So what were the results of this study? He uh, identified 200 individuals that were previously identified as homosexual who had lived the homosexual lifestyle uh, for a number of years, over a decade, were the parameters of his study. And now they must identify as heterosexual, and they must have been identifying and living as a heterosexual individual for a minimum of five years. The results of the study found this to be the case. Pre-assessment, pre-reparative therapy, pre-conversion therapy, men who who underwent uh, conversion therapy identified 100% in this study, 100% of the men in this study identified as homosexual, 100%. Post-therapy, post-conversion therapy, 53% of the men in this study now identified as heterosexual, and he means they have sexual intercourse in a heterosexual manner. They are no longer feeling attracted to individuals of the same gender. They are now feeling attracted and experiencing sexual activities with people of, the different, of a different gender than theirs. Of the women, 84% 
84%. Again, pre-conversion therapy, 100% identified as, as, a, as homosexual. Post-conversion therapy, 84% changed their sexual orientation. Now, those are some big numbers. Is it possible the law of Canada and the government of Canada say that it's a myth that such things don't happen? But the most comprehensive study ever done, published in 2003, less than 20 years old, says that for 54% of men and 84% of women, it does happen. What about harm? This question of harm. Are we hurting people? Quote, Depression has been reported to be a common side effect of unsuccessful attempts to change sexual orientation. Listen closely. Quote, This was not the case for our participants, who often reported that they were markedly or extremely depressed prior to conversion therapy, but rarely that depressed post-conversion therapy. To the contrary, at post-assessment, the vast majority reported that they were, quote, not at all or only, quote, slightly depressed. Males less depressed than females, males at 91%, females at 88% less depressed post-therapy. Participants were presented with a list of several ways that the therapy might have been considered very helpful apart from the change in sexual orientation. Just put a pause on that. Remember, 54% of men were able to change their sexual orientation. That's not 100%. We're still talking about 40, 46% of men who went through conversion therapy and it was unsuccessful. So the question was, now that you have tried and been unsuccessful, do you feel depressed? The response was, no, I don't feel depressed. No, I'm not filled with more hopelessness and more self loathing. Just the opposite. They're less depressed. They're more hopeful. And a list of alternative successful outcomes was presented for them to consider. And the majority of respondents said, quote, it was notable. This is, this is what Dr. Spitzer writes in his research study. It was notable that the majority of respondents post post-conversion therapy were feeling more masculine for males or more feminine for females, and they considered this a very positive outcome. In other words, they still struggle with homosexual attraction. 46% of men and 12% of women were incapable of making the orientation change. However, they still valued the effort, because even in the effort, they felt more like themselves afterwards what they wanted to be, which was either more masculine or more feminine. They were not depressed. There was no psychological harm. And, and now you might be wondering, what exactly did Spitzer do? Did he, you know, electroshock them? Was that what was going on here? No, no. Spitzer says, real change in sexual orientation seems plausible as the participants used change strategies commonly effective in all psychotherapies utilized today. For example, he's going to tell you, participants often developed a narrative linking childhood or family experiences to current problems. They received support from a group or other individual who mentored them. They utilized thought-stopping strategies, and they avoided situations that triggered homosexual feelings. In other words, what they're being counseled to do is, hey, if you start to think about homosexual things, stop thinking about those things. 
And uh, don't put yourselves in situations where you might be tempted to act out on those kinds of things. And and also, uh, let's talk about why you feel these desires in the first place. But what's most damning, in my opinion, about this conclusion, Spitzer, and I'll draw your attention to this, Spitzer says, quote, they used change strategies that were commonly effective in all psychotherapies being used today. In other words, for issues not related to homosexuality, these so-called therapies that they're employing are therapies that are used across the spectrum to address a broad range of issues. This is not car battery and jumper cables. They're outlawing practices for sexual orientation change, which practices are still widely used in all manner of other kinds of counseling and therapy. If the practices are harmful, let's outlaw the practices. If the practices can be shown to be effective, at least in terms of men, 54%, in terms of women, 84 88%, then it is possible for orientation to happen. And as these same people say, even amongst the ones that did not experience a successful change in orientation, they did not report harm. They weren't hurt by it. And if the therapies are harmful, let's, let's ban them across the board. But of course, the issue isn't the therapies. This is the real problem. The issue is how we are to regard homosexual behavior, transgenderism in the first place. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's just one study, Pastor Josh. It is not one study. There are multiple studies. Carton and Wade, clinical psychologists and researchers working in the Department of Psychology for Fordham University, published a study called Sexual Orientation Change Efforts, S-O-C-E. They looked specifically at sexual orientation change efforts in men, and they looked at it from a client perspective. Their specific question was they wanted to understand how harmful it was to undergo reparative therapy. The study looked at 116 men, specifically men again, who had undergone reparative therapy and reorientation therapy, and they asked very specific questions about what were the best clinical techniques, what the clients found to be most helpful in their change efforts. And what they found was, in terms of, uh, they found two things, what we call clinical techniques as well as interventions. This is psychological jargon. A clinical technique is what the counselor is using in the counselor's office. And then an intervention is to be understood as the strategy that the individual uses when when they go home, the week in between visits to the counselor's office. In terms of best psychiatric clinical techniques, It was determined by the clients who underwent reparative or conversion therapy that exploring and analyzing for the purposes of better understanding the causes of one's homosexual and one's own emotional needs were very effective. In other words, these individuals wanted to know why they felt the way that they felt, and they wanted to talk about it. Number two, developing non-sexual relationships with same-sex peers, that is, people of the same gender, Developing relationships with mentors, family members, and friends was considered the most helpful clinical uh, intervention. In other words, individuals who underwent reparative therapy or conversion therapy, as it's known, found that the most helpful thing was to be able to have a friend in which they could talk about what they were going through. They wanted to change they wanted a friend who would talk to them about the change that they were attempting to achieve. Which is why Bill C4 is particularly heinous. 
because it makes those conversations illegal. Again, not the only study. I see time is starting to get away from us, but I wanted to just ask another question in my research. And there were dozens upon dozens of studies I went through. I spent over $400 purchasing all these scientific journals. You're welcome to read them. I've got copies of it in my office. But the other question I wanted to ask was, how long does change take? If it's possible and it's not harmful, how long do we strive until we see results? Jones and Yarhouse, 2011 study, titled A Longitudinal Study of Attempted Mediated Sexual Orientation Change. That's a mouthful. Say, those are some big words, Pastor. What in the world? Basically, they started with, again, 116 individuals, and they walked with them over the course of seven years and assessed at what point during the course of therapy, seven-year-long study, did these individuals begin to experience significant change in their sexual orientation. The results... Again, it varies, but on average, again, over seven years, a change from homosexual to heterosexual desire in a mediated program, 23% uh, experienced the change, and it took, on average, three to four years. So they they gathered a group of guys together, they began therapy, and somewhere between year three and year four, the respondents began to acknowledge that they were changing, that they were changing. What's interesting about the Jones and the Yarhouse study, again, they they got a bunch of people together. 23% of the individuals in this particular study reported change, which means 70%, over 70%, did not experience change. Those that did experience change in this particular study, it took three to four years before they experienced change. But that leaves the overwhelming majority in this particular study who did not experience change at the seven-year mark. However, if we're talking about change in terms of heterosexual attraction, going from feeling homosexual to feeling heterosexual, 23% experienced change at the three to four year mark, but an additional 30% experienced change at the three to four year mark, not away from homosexual to heterosexual, but away from overwhelming homosexual desires to what respondents considered to be stable, celibate sexual behavior. In other words, they had determined that they did not want to be homosexual anymore regardless of whether or not they became heterosexual. And again, when you group that number of respondents in, at the three to four year mark, the 30% experienced what I would call chastity, and 23% experienced a reorientation entirely. Which means you're talking 53% that ceased from homosexual activity and were able to do it. Coming back to Oh, and harm, that study again asked the question about harm. Quote, evidence from this study suggests that the change of homosexual orientation appears possible for many and that psychological distress did not increase on average. This is across seven years. Psychological distress did not increase on average for any participants as a result of the involvement in this conversion therapy, end quote. I don't even experience increased stress. It's the ordinary stress. 
Dr. Robert Spitzer, coming back to him. Last paragraph of his, of his essay, his research. Quote, these findings of considerable benefits and no obvious harm in this study suggest that the current recommendations by the American Psychiatric Association that ethical practitioners refrain from attempts to change individuals' sexual orientation is based on a double standard. It implies that it is unethical for a clinician to provide reparative therapy because there is inadequate scientific evidence of effectiveness, whereas it assumes that it is ethical to provide gay affirmative therapy for which there is also no rigorous scientific evidence of effectiveness, and for which, like reparative therapy, there have been reports and testimonials of harm. Dr. Spitzer does not identify publicly as a Christian. He is a gay rights activist. He was instrumental in the redefining of homosexuality, no longer as a disease, but to uh, be considered as an, acceptable home, as an acceptable lifestyle. And his study asked the question, does harm occur? Yes or no. Is change possible? Yes or no. In both cases, he says, harm does not occur. Change is possible. And his conclusion is, all of these so-called stories about harm are pure anecdote. And it's all based on a double standard. They're criticizing reparative therapy, saying that change, these so-called stories of change are purely anecdotal. He's saying, my research now proves it is not anecdotal. There are real people. And he has a database, which is still able to be accessed, again, for a small fee, but he still has a database of these individuals to this day. It is not anecdotal. It works for some individuals. The claim that harm is occurring is anecdotal, and there are, based on my research to date, no studies that actually verify harm has happened. But what do the scriptures say? 1 Corinthians chapter. 6, verses 9 to 11. It says, Do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want you to just look up here. Do you see that right there? And such were some of you. The scriptures say that change is possible. The Word of God calls us to holiness. The Word of God calls us to purity. And the Scriptures say that change is possible. This is past tense. And such were some of you. In other words, what Paul is saying is that previously some of you were homosexual. Previously some of you were adulterers. And he goes on and he lists a number of sins. He says, you were these things. But do you want to know how change can happen? 
It happens by how Paul concludes this passage in 1 Corinthians. He says, you were some of those things. You were now washed. You were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You can change by the power of God. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and if you will believe in him, and if you will hope in him, God promises that he will pay the penalty for your sin, but he won't leave you a sinner. He will not only pay what you owe, he will begin to actively work in your life in order to begin the process of sanctification. It's going to be a long, hard road. I don't want to create any illusions here. It's not as though you just trust in Jesus Christ and a switch gets flipped and the next morning everything about you is totally different. Anybody that's walked with Christ for a long time will tell you that's just not how it works. It requires a long, difficult journey, but Jesus is right there with you. He stays with you all the way, and he helps you to the end. If you will trust in Jesus, God can fix you. He promises to fix you. And you're here this morning, you're thinking, okay, Pastor Josh, but those studies show that around 50% approximately, and specifically in the male category, that they were not able to successfully change. And some of you are sitting here this morning thinking, what about Christian men who trust in Jesus? What, what do we need to think about these men or these women who trust in Jesus, who give their lives to Christ, yet they're not capable of changing their attraction to individuals of the same gender? The call upon them is no different than the call upon you and me. The myth that we generally tend to cling to is that somehow homosexuality is of a particularly pernicious nature more so than any other sin that we engage in. God's intention in giving us attraction and arousal is that we would feel attraction and arousal for our mate, for our spouse. How many men among us feel attraction or arousal for women that are not our spouse? How many men among us have experienced at some point in time the, the sexual desire of lust for someone we were not married to? When you're a homosexual struggling with same-sex attraction, you're feeling an arousal to someone who happens to be the same gender. That is wrong. That is wrong in the exact same way that all red-blooded men feel attraction and arousal for someone that they shouldn't. I read an account of two different leaders of, uh, of different Christian ministries that were focused in on helping homosexual individuals. These were recovering homosexual men. They got married to a, a woman, two different men, two different accounts. And in one account, it took the individual 12 months before he was able to consummate his marriage to his wife. In another case, it took this other individual 18 months to consummate his marriage to his wife. These were men that had believed in Jesus, had believed in the scriptures, had committed to walking with Christ, had fallen in love with a woman, had gotten married, and yet had struggled still to feel enough desire for their spouse 
in order to consummate the marriage. And yet, their testimony to this day is, after time and walking with God, they still struggle from time to time with desire and arousal for other individuals of the same gender, but they are capable of experiencing that desire and that arousal for their wife which is to say that they struggle with the same sin that any man or any woman struggles with whenever we have felt desire or arousal for someone we're not married to. Now, I share those stories with you because the church is guilty of two major sins. We tend to think that when it comes to homosexual attraction and homosexual desire, that it's like a switch that can easily be flipped on and off. And we talk about it this way as though people are capable quickly of changing their orientation. All of the research and all of the data that I've shared with you today is intended to show you that this is not the case. Our corruption runs deep. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are born sinners. We are ruined sinners, as we, as we sang earlier. Jesus can save us. He will save us. But for all of us, that journey towards holiness is a lifelong struggle. And when we consider individuals who struggle with same-sex attraction, we tend to look at them and say, well, you can just turn that off. Think about the fact that you're attracted to women, not your wife, the next time you're tempted to say something like that. Can you just turn that off? No. But by the same token, you are still called by God not to feel it. And this is where we need to be humble, honest, yet committed to the Scriptures. We are called to have purity towards all our sisters, all our brothers and sisters. We are called to have desire only for our spouse. And whether we succeed or whether we fail in terms of having that desire, the scriptures do not change. The first mistake we make as a church is telling our brothers and sisters who struggle with same-sex attraction that they can just turn it off, just flip a switch as though it's easy. That is arrogant. But the second mistake that we sometimes make as a church is we tend to excuse it as though individuals who struggle with homosexuality or same-sex attraction, individuals who identify as LGBTQ, are experiencing some sort of a temptation that is special, that is more perverse, darker, more sinister than what all of us have experienced. And to that, I would remind you of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overcome you except what is common to all mankind. Mistake number one, thinking that it is easy to repent and that people should be capable of flipping a switch when they can't just flip a switch. Mistake number two is thinking that they must endure forever in this particular sin, that there is no way of escape when Paul says emphatically, there is always a way of escape. Church, we got to toe the line. we got to love our brothers and sisters who struggle with homosexual desires. we got to love our brothers and sisters who struggle with feeling uncomfortable in their gender. Nevertheless, the scriptures are clear. The call of God is the same. And for those of you who are here within this room, there might be some of you who struggle with same-sex attraction. For those of you who are listening online, Undoubtedly, some of you may struggle with homosexual attraction. And you might be thinking to yourself, I don't want to hear this. 
you do know and you must understand that whether I'm locked up in jail, whether our whole society is reordered as a result of laws and different measures that are implemented, such that you may never hear another Bible verse preached at you ever again, such that you may never have to hear a preacher talking about God's call for holiness and purity and repentance ever again. Though you can lock us up in jail for five years, though you can silence the scriptures, though you can completely remodify society in such a way that everybody is falling all over themselves and getting tongue-tied trying to use the proper pronouns, you will never be able to change this world in such a way that you will feel comfortable identifying as something other than what God made you. You may never hear it from any of us ever again, but you will never stop hearing from the Spirit of God who speaks in your heart. What the government of Canada wants to do is to silence us from trying to help you. What they've actually done is they've made it impossible for you to get help, but they have not changed the truth from being proclaimed. I'm reminded of that story in the Gospels, in which Jesus is walking along and he encounters a rich young ruler. This rich young ruler asks Jesus the question, he says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's essentially asking him, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. Worship God, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. You know, he kind of runs through the litany. And the rich young ruler says, I've done all of this. I've done all of this since I was a youth. What more must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And the scripture says that Jesus looking at him, loved him. It's easy for us to say, number one, I don't have the time to help you. Number two, now me talking to you is going to actually put me in legal jeopardy, so I'm just going to zip my lips and keep silent about these things. It's easy for us to do that. But remember the account of the rich young ruler. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And in what can only be described as an impromptu conversation that happened on the side of the roadway as Jesus is busily making his way somewhere else to do something else, Jesus stopped in the hustle and the bustle and in the moment, and he looked at this man, and it says he loved him. The government of Canada has committed a crime that is hateful. My fear for the Canadian church is that we would respond to that with an equally hateful response which is to be silent when God calls us to speak. We love these people because Jesus loves these people. And the gospel must go forth to the ends of the earth. For any individual who is hearing me who may struggle with LGBTQ identity, I want to conclude by saying this. This man was in love with his possessions. That was his particular sin. And no doubt, you love that significant person, but you love them in an improper way, just as this young man loved his money in an improper way. And the offer that Jesus gives to him 
It's the same offer he gives to you. You can inherit eternal life. You can know God and have all the desires of your heart satisfied in Christ. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, walk away from everything and follow him. And that's the offer for all of us. Walk away from everything and worship Jesus. Would you please bow with me? Father in heaven, our prayer is, Lord, that we would be faithful to speak the truth. That we would show our brothers and sisters that we love them. They would understand that the desires and that the temptations we face are not all that dissimilar to the ones that they experience, that they face. God, as we minister, help us to be faithful to you and to your word. Lord, our prayer is that you would save our nation, that you would have mercy on our country. Father, to that end, you, you desire that the name of Christ be exalted. And so our prayer is that you would help us to be faithful and loving to all. Do this, we pray, by your word. In the name of Jesus, amen.